there, there, are lots, there are lots of stories about, about Francis's relationship with animals um, and with creation. And there's the story of him preaching to the birds. Francis preaching to the birds under a tree, uh, or preaching a sermon under a tree, but the birds are making such a ding that he, had to, he stops his sermon, addresses them, asks them to be silent. And they were. Yeah. <laughs> and then he preaches to the birds when he's finished, and they rise up from the tree and circle around and singing them, and then fly away. So the story goes. <laughs> or there's a story of the wolf of Gubbio, the taming of the vicious wolf, um, and he makes peace between the citizens of Gubbio and and this and this terrible wolf. They recognise him that uh, um, actually there are other ways of dealing it, dealing with it. And there's a little cricket who comes and sits on his hand at the, the, each day and, uh, um, in, in the morning and comes and sits there and uh, he does that every day for a week and then Francis says well, he, this is making him proud because he thinks he can call down a cricket so he tells the cricket that, that you know, this is the last time last time the cricket stops um, there's a story um, quoted uh, just to read a little story about which I think I rather like a fisherman offered him a little water bird so that he might rejoice in the Lord over it the Blessed Father received it gladly and with open hands, gently invited it to fly away freely, but the bird did not want to leave. Instead, it settled down in his hand as in a nest, and the saint, his eyes lifted up, remained in prayer, returning to himself as if after a long stay in another place. He sweetly told the little bird to return to its original freedom. And so the bird, having received permission with a blessing, flew away, expressing its joy with the movements of its body. I mean, lots of little legend. I mean, these are, these are legendary stories, you know. Um, stories which have grown up around, around, around Francis. And it wasn't just, uh, it wasn't the animate objects, I mean, creatures, live creatures. It was also the inanimate. So he, 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 he's reluctant to, to let his brothers blow out the candle because it's putting out brother fire. <laughs> it's extinguishing brother fire. So he has a sort of rather bizarre... A sense of everything has value and everything has a place. Of course, he's not alone in all this. I mean, he, Francis wasn't the only person, isn't the only person who has a relationship with, with the created world. Since Seraphim Asarov, the great orthodox starets of the 19th century, he, he had a relationship with a bear. He used to come and visit him in the woods. And they made a friendship with the bear. Um, St. Giles, I think it was, had a relationship with a deer, which he rescued mm. from a hunt. The one I love, and it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a legend, um, uh, an imaginary legend, I think, probably, of St. Kevin and the Blackbird, which you might know this poem from Seamus Heaney, and it's so lovely, I think I want to read it. <laughs> um, it's one of the Celtic, Irish Celtic saints about how the blackbird used to come and sit on St. Kevin's hand. I think it's a beautiful poem. Mm -hmm. But it, that sense of communion, communion with the world around. And of course, that, that also is reflected in scripture. I mean, Francis wasn't, again, he's not, he's, not, he's not starting anything new. If you read Psalm 148, where all the creatures, creation gives thanks and praise to God, or the Song of the Three, the, the Benedicity, we call it sometimes in the prayer book, we call it the Benedicity. Again, it's, it's the stars and the frost and the cold give praise, give praise to God. And you could go on mentioning all, and, you know, 
um, John Clare, the poet John Clare, um, Gerard Manley Hopkins, you know, all these wonderful poets. But it's, it's interesting how it's captured in poetry. We're here in the language and the culture of poetry, which somehow gets to a truth deeper than just merely observable facts. That's what Francis is into. Um, there's one quote I'd just love to give you from, from a, a monk with a glorious name of Idung of Prufingen, um, a Cistercian monk, just living before about the generation before Francis. He writes, You are a simple-minded theologian if you do not know that inanimate creatures, devoid of sense and life, speak to God and praise God. Mm-hmm. Now, We've just come to the end of two weeks of Extinction Rebellion. Um, I have to say some of our brothers have been involved in it, been on the bridge. I know one or two people who've been arrested and charged. Um, and whatever you think of Extinction Rebellion and whether people should climb onto the top of underground trains or block roads or cause chaos or whatever, whatever you think, I don't want to get into an argument about that. What I think it does signify is a changing worldview, a changing understanding, a changing recognition that something, recognition that something is wrong about our relationship with the world around us, something is deeply fractured, and that that this leads to, it will lead to, is leading to, already leading to, disaster, catastrophe. Um, uh, we sitting here in one of the richest cities in the world, probably from the top, I would say comfortably, I could say all of us within the top 10% of the most affluent in the world, um, including Franciscan fires, I might say, uh, are, you know, actually we are, uh, we are responsible for something which is deeply affecting, certainly, mostly, the bottom 30% of people in, in the world and that we are we are coming to a crisis and whatever you think about the appropriateness of the Extinction Rebellion I think that's a significant a significant change which is taking place in people's people's world it's no longer it, 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 in a poll recently taken uh, the top concern in this poll that people expressed was uh, uh, climate change and the effect upon the world around us, and that's a that's a big change and shift in in understanding. So Jonathan Porritt, founder of Friends of the Earth, <coughs> he wrote some time ago. He said, "What the world needs, um, uh, what in the present crisis demands requires, is not so much a cap on carbon emissions." important though that is, uh, but a radical reorientation of the way we think of ourselves in relation to the world around us. Something akin to a revolution, he says. So we were saying this 20 years ago. And I would, add, I would add something akin to a spiritual revolution. Because actually at its base, the climate crisis the, uh, the crisis in terms of our relationship with the world around us is not, a, not simply a technical problem, 
it's a spiritual problem, it's a theological problem, it's a philosophical problem, about, it's about the way, it's about our worldview. And what I want to suggest is that, that Francis, in his life, and particularly summed up in this canticle, offers us a radically different worldview, a different way of seeing ourselves in relation to the, to the world around us. Um, Rowan Williams, when he was Archbishop, and in his wonderful little book, Tokens of Trust, he, he, he wrote, he wrote uh, we have come to see the world around us as a giant warehouse of stuff there for our convenience, rather than ourselves as part of a community of creatures living in relation to the mystery of God. And that is the sort of revolution that's needed from a warehouse of stuff to being there for our convenience to a, being part of a community of creatures living in relation to the, to the mystery of God. And the canticle, I think, focuses or expresses that everything about that, a community of creatures living in relation to the mystery of God. So just going through those sort of images and what, what Francis looks at, what Francis celebrates, what Francis joins in praise with, I mean, just a little reflection on that, I think, itself can lead us into a, it can be a useful reflection, meditation. So, Sir Brother Son, um, we, are, we are actually are dependent, utterly dependent on Brother Son. On our distance from Brother Son, and actually, it's a wonderful life-giving source of light. And there is a danger as well. We can have too much sun. It can be disastrous for us. And with a world heating up, it could be catastrophic. Uh, the moon and the stars um, glistening and glittering. Um, uh, of course, we have a much greater understanding of, of the wonder of the moon and the stars. I mean, for Francis, it was also that, you know, they were just up there and we were at the centre, um, and you could almost touch the stars, but, but actually we know, I mean, that we now, we now know that we live in our galaxy alone, there are a hundred billion stars, and that we're just one of perhaps hundreds and hundreds of thousands of galaxies. We're in a comparatively small galaxy. And the distances are just beyond our comprehension. Trillions and trillions and trillions of miles is the extent of the universe across. And yet, and yet, we've got all that understanding, and yet, when living in London, do you last see the stars? You don't. Lights. You can't see the stars. You can see the moon. But the stars, we have no understanding of, and you have to go out, right out into the country, right out into the country, or into another part of the world to get a glimpse and understanding of the wonder of the stars. And Brother Wind, um, wonderful, the power of wind, the, uh, what it can do, it can generate energy, it refreshes, it cleanses, it brings pure air, but but also, you know, we're experiencing increasing hurricanes. Um, that, that's the prediction, you know. Devastating. There's been a tornado in Japan this last week. 
interrupted the world. And and you know and one of the big problems in, in London and big, any big cities is, is air pollution. The effect of that. I, I notice it coming from Hillfield. I'm asthmatic in London. Um, and then Sister Water. Ah, the great gift of water. Um, how lucky we are to have it, to be able to turn on the tap and have it. One third of the world does not have fresh water to drink. And um, there's a real, you know, the, the conflicts of the future will be over, over access to water because the water table is dropping. We're using more water than is being replaced. Whole inland lakes are just disappearing. And yet at the same time, you know, the seas are rising. So, you know, um, just through just this reflection on the canticle, uh, it brings us into an awareness of what's happening. Brother Fire. A wonderful giver of energy and yet what fire produces co2 emissions and then mother earth um, our dependence upon the earth we are humans from the humus adam is from the root word adama adam from the adama is the earth adam is the the, hum, the person of the earth and we are we are we are earthy creatures Remember, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We say on Ash Wednesday, as the ashes are put on our head. Very important. Um, but, you know, um, the topsoil is being eroded, and the earth is growing infertile because of overuse. And what about the forests and so on, which leading to, to, uh, to, to barrenness? So, just a reflection on the canticle brings us into contact with these, these issues of our relationship with creation. But there are two, there are two particular things about what the poet, the, the, poet the, the canticle reveals to us, which I think are really significant in terms of our understanding and of our possibility of a transformed, transformed worldview. And the first thing which we've, we've um, uh, we've been passed over but, and haven't reflected on is the fact that he calls the creatures brother and sister. He has this familial relationship, not just with his fellow human beings, not just with the animal creation, but with the inanimate as well. So, brother, sun, sister, moon, brother, fire, sister, water, and so on. He has this sense that we a part of one, one family. We belong together. It, it was said of Francis that he had a piety towards every creature. And uh, it's interesting that you, that use of that word piety. Um, piety, in we think now, is a sort of you know, religious thing. A person who's pious <coughs> is very holy. Um, perhaps it's not a very... Um, it's a rather negative term, even, a person who shows their piety. But piety in medieval Latin, pietas, actually was about the relationship with people of the same blood, the obligation of people with the same blood, that you owe to your blood relative. Showing piety is recognising your relationship and your obligation to each other. 
And Francis had, had that. A sense that we have an obligation. We belong. He, was all, he also had, it's mentioned that he had a courtesy towards every preacher. And again, courtesy is the behaviour of the court where everyone has a right to be there. Everyone has a right to be. Interestingly, he, he says to the gardener in one of the friars, he said, he was digging the garden, he said, uh, you must leave a space for the weeds because they have a right to be there. <laughs> and although you may as a gardener sort of uh, deplore that and deplore the weeds, actually it's because it's wise ecology. The great green fields we see in our land are actually green deserts because they have, everything else has been blasted out, killed off, with huge effects upon the rest of the uh, life, the, the bird life and the insect life um, around there. Um, now this may all seem sort of rather fanciful, this, this familial relationship, this brother-sister business. Um, we had a brother once, Brother Nicholas, lived here in London, and he was in the habit of some you know, referring to everything in the St. Francis's terms. So he would at the dinner table, he'd say, please pass brother potato, uh, <laughs> sister water, please. Yeah. Got a little irritating at times. Yeah. Uh, but you may think it's a bit winsome and, 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 and fanciful, but, but of course it's actually it's true. It's true. We share 98% of our genes with those of an orangutan. Mm and between 60 and 70% of our genes with those of a banana. No. It's true. Yes. Yes. will tell you. You know? Um, and, uh, you know, we are, we are all stardust. That's the reality. That's, that is the real world. This is, and we're living in an unreal world. A, real, a world which doesn't recognise that and acknowledge that is actually an unreal world. It's a fan fantasy world. And I suggest that we live in a, our culture lives in a fantasy world. Francis brings us back to reality. Brings us back to reality. Just take, for instance, our, our relationship with food. I wonder where your breakfast came from. Whatever you had. Maybe you were lucky enough to have bacon and eggs. <laughs> but you know, where, where did it actually come from? Apart from the shelf at Sainsbury's or, <laughs> or, 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 or wherever, Waitrose, wherever you like to go. Um, you know, that's, that's where, we, that's where people, our understanding of food comes from. But we have no idea, actually, most of us, no idea of where our food comes from or what is the cost of our food. Not just the cash, not just what we put on our debit card, but actually the real cost, the cost of the cost to the people who work on the land, who produce the food, the cost to the land itself, the cost to the climate. We have no conception of that. And one of the great, you know, I, I think one of the great um, changes which I think needs to come about is that everything that we have, everything that we buy, should have on it, labelled on it, not just the, the price, but the cost. It's done to the cost that is, is, is given to, to it, 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 what, what is the cost in actually producing the cost, the cost of land. That might change our, our understanding. And, you know, that's, it, 
it, it, it's also led to sort of a disruption of the way we understand our bodies, even our relationship with our bodies, because um, one of the big problems in our relationship with food is, is um, that we, we, we have a, dis, a, a, a dysfunctional relationship, and the problems of, of, of um, problems with food, either too much or too little, are a growing crisis in our culture. We've sort of lost sense of that necessary relationship. Um, one of the interesting things I think is, you know, we, we have the ability to communicate in our world in a way unimaginable to our, to our parents and grandparents. I mean, you know, these things here. We can, we can, you know, I can speak to my godson and see him there in Sydney anytime. Yeah, just, yes. just tap it in. It's free as well. It's amazing. Um, so it seems. Um, and we have this immense ability to communicate and to travel. And yet actually, what we experience increasingly in our culture is isolation, yes. loneliness, particularly amongst the elderly, but not just, amongst young people as well. Funny enough, you know, a thousand addresses on your Facebook doesn't actually mean you've got lots of friends. It actually can isolate you further. It can cut you off and give you a sense of, of isolation. Um, I'm, a, I'm a great, I, I, I love David Attenborough's, David Attenborough's um, films, you know, the planet Earth and the blue planet and the, I mean, wonderful, wonderful photography. It's really good and it's had a huge effect upon people and making, waking people up to the natural world. But we see it in virtual reality. We see it on the screen. We see it sitting in our armchairs. And I would I want to say to, to him, I wish, I wish David Attenborough actually showed us what's in our back garden. Because that's actually as, as much a, um, a mystery and a wonder as actually the lions in the desert and, and, and so on. Um, Francis calls us back to our relationship. Um, to a sense that we belong, that we are, we are part of. And that's an essential mind shift. We're not above nature. Nature isn't out there, we are nature. We are it. Um, D.H. Lawrence, uh, in one of his last books, I think, called Apocalypse, he writes, we ought to dance with rapture that we should be alive in the flesh and part of the living incarnate cosmos. I am part of the sun as my eye is part of me. That's amazing. It's, I am part of the sun as uh, the eye is, my eye is part of me. Um, relationship. The second thing which I think we see in the canticle, which is really important for this changed perception, I think is simply delight. Delight. A sense of attention to and delight in. The first creation story in the book of Genesis 
first creation story in Genesis. And we have that refrain which comes after each verse. And God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. And then at the end, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very, very good. Um, that's the Hebrew Christian understanding of the world. The world it, it is not, it, there's nothing ambivalent about creation. There's not some of it's a good and some of it's a bad. All of it is created good. All of it is created out of God's love. There is no necessity in creation, the medieval theologians said. God didn't need to create anything. God's creation is simply out of love, out of, out of, out of othering God's self. Um, and so we live, in that case, in a community, not just of a good creation, but in terms, in, we live in a gifted creation. We live in an economy of gift. Everything that we have, everything that we receive, is gift. The air we breathe, the light we receive, the clothing we have, the shelter and so on, is gift. Um, that's very different from the culture in which we live. Because we live not in an economy of gift, actually. Or we think we live not in an economy of gift. We live in an economy of the market. The market where everything has a price. And you pay for what you want. And then you own it. You control it. It's yours. Um, and so we think in terms of possessing. And... Uh, and controlling and fighting for and we think of the world as resource, natural resource, uh, there to be exploited, there to be used. It's all there for our use, a giant warehouse of stuff there for our use. Um, that's the, the culture in, in, in which we live and it controls actually every aspect of our lives. Everything is for sale. There's a price to everything. Now markets are important. They're, they're useful for exchange. They're useful for meeting and for making relationships. I'm not saying there's no market. There's no room for the market. But if we lose sight that we are, we live in an economy of gift, again, we've lost touch with reality. We've lost touch with reality. Um, we belong to the world, the world does not belong to us. The, the Catholic Church has, well, going back to Thomas Aquinas, uh, has this great statement that, that um, the, the, um, there is a common destination of all goods. All goods have a common destination. I.e., in the end, ultimately, everyone has an equal right to everything. That people may own things uh, on trust and have things for a time, but actually in the end uh, it belongs to the commons. The idea of the, from which we get the idea of the common good, which is much talked about today. And Catholic and Anglican social teaching certainly stress this, the importance of the common good. Um, 
The dominance of the market tends to undermine that. Tends to undermine that. Subvert that. Um, it's not just in Catholic social teaching and Anglican William Tyndale, the great, the reformer who tr first translated the New Testament into English, um, or after Wycliffe, he, he, he said, he said, in one essay, he said, the word, <coughs> the word my has no place in the Gospels. Isn't that amazing? The word my has no place in the Gospels. He said, whatever I have beyond my own use is available for my neighbour. Whatever it be on my own needs and my family's needs is available for my neighbour. Be he ever so far off, be he a thousand miles distant, be he even amongst the Saracens, the same as amongst Muslims, uh, in, in the same as <coughs> Muslims in, in, in the 1520s. Uh, when it was republished in Queen Elizabeth's reign, that essay, they missed out with it about the Saracens. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if, if, if you've got a point there. We, the common destination of goods. Everything, everything is gift. We live in an economy of gift. Um, Francis had a delight in that. But not only that, he had a, he had a, a sense that actually every creature was not just gift, but actually revealed something to us of the giver. of the source and of the destination of everything. It was said of him that in, in, in every beautiful thing, he saw the one who is beauty itself. And by contemplating the things of this earth, his mind soared aloft to the life-giving source of all, whose likeness is imprinted in every creature. And the word imprint is, he actually uses his vestige. And the vestige, is, the vestige is your footprint. And I love that idea of the footprint, God's footprint in every creature. In every atom of existence is God's footprint. It isn't, doesn't make the atom divine, it doesn't, it's not pantheism, but it actually reveals the shape of God, the outline of God, even the smallest thing. Uh, the, 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 early, the early Christians spoke of creation as the first scriptures, the first book, the first revelation of God. Uh, then came this, the revelation in, 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 in the words of scripture. But so the, first, the first revelation of God is, is in creation, where every creature is a word. Um, every creature a word. This is a profoundly sacramental view, that every creature points beyond itself to the reality of God, to the goodness of God, to the utter giftedness of God. Profoundly sacramental view. Sacraments are not just what we celebrate in bread and wine uh, on the altar or in baptism with water or with oil with unction and so on. Sacraments actually are all around us. Everything it has the potential to be sacrament. Um, and above all, um, above all, God himself participates in the sacrament. 
there is something of God, some image of God in, in, in everything, uh, revealed in everything. And above all, above all, um, of course, in, in, in Jesus Christ, who reveals the full image of God and likeness of God to us. I don't know if any of you, any of you from St. Martin in the Fields here? Of course. Um, because at the entrance of St. Martin in the Fields, under the portico, there's that great block of Portland stone. Yes. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. And in it, in it, the rough top of it, the rough hewn stuff at the top of it, is this, is this newborn baby with its umbilical cord um, attached to the stone. And the words around the outside saying, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. God participating in our life and so in a sense touching everything touching every every stone every 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 plant every person um, to bring us into union with God to reconcile us to God <coughs> to bring us back into our true relationship of harmony with God um, the Orthodox Church, and actually also the Franciscans, particularly the theologian John Danskosis in the Middle Ages, said that the incarnation, God becoming human in Jesus Christ, was there right at the beginning of creation. That was God's purpose in creation, to come to dwell among us. There are some who always said that the, the, the incarnation was God's rescue effort, you know, because we messed up in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve and all that. You know, we've messed up, we've fallen, and so God has, oh, we're going to start again and we're we'll, we'll. But actually, the, 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 the Orthodox theologians say, no, 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 that was actually, it, God intended right from the very beginning to, to dwell among us, to be part of us, to draw us deeper into union with him. Um, that Jesus Christ is, is, the, is, is, is the blueprint for all creation. Uh, and uh, it's it's both it, the beginning, the alpha, and the omega. What we what we all ought to become in union with in union with in union with God. Um, and John Danskos has said that that everything by its thisness inclines inclines towards Christ by by its the, you know the lion by roaring the. The tree by by by, by its leaves, uh, you know the, the water by glistening, but the and so on. Everything by being what it is, what God intended, points towards Christ, the ultimate destiny of all things, the omega point, as uh, the theologian um, uh, Taya de Shanta said. So uh, relationship. Belonging, familiness, and delight in, I think are at the heart of this, this canticle. Brother, sister, joy, delight. And I think we've got to learn, learn again, how to pay attention. How to pay attention. I... I I, I'm blessed. I've got a friend of mine uh, called Bob, Bob Gilbert, 
uh, who is uh, a writer um, who, who lives quite close to here, lives in Poplar. His wife is the vicar of All Saints Poplar. But he's a, he, he, his last job was uh, director, director of Environmental Services for Islington Borough Council. But he's a, he's a botanist, he's an ornithologist, he's a natural historian, uh, he's, but he's also a social historian. And about once every six weeks or two months, Bob and I go for a walk, and he takes me around East London. And uh, he points out to me what there is to see. He points out to me the weeds in the pavement. And he tells me where they come from. You can go down to, to the um, Poplar Marina, not far from here. And there beside the Poplar Marina, you'll find the only place in this country where, where the Jersey cuddleweed flourishes. <laughs> The Jersey cudweed. Look it up on the online. Because actually, what's happened is that the Jersey cudweed has come on luxury yachts from Jersey, you know, quite a lot back then. And they've docked in the Poplar Marina, and somebody with their feet has brought it ashore. And it's great, there's a bit of gravel there, this, this, this part. You know, he points it out to me. He tells me the story of these. These, these plants, the plants you see just, just around the place, which I mean, you know, it's cool. I find it amazing. And he doesn't just, I mean, shows me that you can see avocets in the East India Dock basin. Avocets, yeah. And the, the Cetis, Cetis warbler, warbler down, down by Canning Town in that sort of little nature reserve there, you'll hear the, the Cetis warbler. Yeah, quite a rare, quite a rare thing. But he doesn't just point out the doesn't just point out that the plants and the birds. Um, he's, he, he knows the social history of the place. He knows where, what's, where all these, you know, we walk around Limehouse. Um, and he points out the buildings and what was here before. Um, he points out the, the match factory in, in, in Bow, where the that great match factory Bryant and May was the Bryant, I mean, it's now luxury flats, of course. But it was the match factory, the ma where Bryant and May uh, had their factory. And it's where the first great strike by women took place in the 1880s against the terrible, dangerous conditions of people working with phosphorus. Um, and successful strike, I might say. It's a celebrated monument, really. He also points out the house where, or the pub, when Admiral Lord Nelson stayed while victory was being refitted um, down at Blackwall before the Battle of Trafalgar. And he also points the house down the road where Lady Hamilton stayed. <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating. And he's got a great sense, I mean, he's, he's passionate also about the loss in London of common spaces. The way which we're having a new wave of enclosures of common, what was once common land now being actually taken over by development corporations. And although it looks very public, actually it's desperately deeply controlled and, and sprayed with all sorts of stuff to keep away the foxes and the weeds and everything else. And he wants to say, you know, um, we're destroying the world around us. We're, we're cutting across our natural, natural relationship. And I, I really believe we've got to, I mean, I'm, I'm blessed with that. And he's incidentally another book to, um, um, Ghost Trees by Bob Gilbert. Just a wonderful collection of essays about the trees of East London, just in the in Poplar. But I mean, he's a great writer, amusing. Um, 
uh, fascinating um, and, and, and quite um, prophetic as well. Ghost Trees by, by Bob, um, Bob Gilbert. Um, Bob Gilbert, yeah. yeah. He's, um, but how, how do we learn, learn to pay attention to what's going on around us? Naomi Klein, in her book, um, This Changes Everything, which I talk about in the revolution, she says that, you know, the climate change happens by very, very small incremental things happening. By the early arrival of a bird, by the late flowering of a species, by the gradual thinning of the ice across the surface of the lake, um, over a number of years. Mm -hmm. And actually learning to notice that mm -hmm. uh, and recognizing that we are, in a sense, to, to, to be in communion with that is really important. Um, another word we have for, for it is, is uh, of course, this paying attention is uh, contemplation. Contemplare to gaze with love. That's what Francis was doing, gazing with love upon the world. And there's an urgency, an urgency amongst us in our churches, in our every institution to help people to gaze with love upon the world, to pay attention, not for what it can do to us, not as a tourist, not, oh God, we can take a few photographs. And, uh, no, no, but to be in relation to it, to recognise that, to delight in it. To see it as to see it as gift. 